Section 14 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Kerner Commission Report. Section 14. Chapter 1. Profiles of Disorder, Detroit, Part 2. State Representative James Del Rio, a Negro, was camping out in front of a building he owned when two small boys, neither more than ten years old, approached. One prepared to throw a brick through a window. Del Rio stopped him. That building belongs to me, he said. I'm glad you told me, baby, because I was just about to bust you in, the youngster replied. Some evidence that criminal elements were organizing spontaneously to take advantage of the riot began to manifest itself. A number of cars were noted to be returning again and again, their occupants methodically looting stores. Months later, goods stolen during the riot were still being peddled. A spirit of carefree nihilism was taking hold. To riot and to destroy appeared more and more to become ends in themselves. Late Sunday afternoon, it appeared to one observer that the young people were dancing amidst the flames. A Negro plainclothes officer was standing at an intersection when a man threw a Molotov cocktail into a business establishment at the corner. In the heat of the afternoon, fanned by the twenty to twenty-five mile-per-hour winds of both Sunday and Monday, the fire reached the home next door within minutes. As residents uselessly sprayed the flames with garden hoses, the fire jumped from roof to roof of adjacent two- and three-story buildings. Within the hour, the entire block was in flames. The ninth house in the burning row belonged to the arsonist who had thrown the Molotov cocktail. In some areas, residents organized rifle squads to protect firefighters. Elsewhere, especially as the wind-whipped flames began to overwhelm the Detroit Fire Department and more and more residences burned, the firemen were subjected to curses and rock-throwing. Because of a lack of funds, on a per capita basis, the department is one of the smallest in the nation. In comparison to Newark, where approximately 1,000 firemen patrol an area of 16 square miles with a population of 400,000, Detroit's 1,700 firemen must cover a city of 140 square miles with a population of 1.6 million. Because the department had no mutual aid agreement with surrounding communities, it could not quickly call in reinforcements from outlying areas, and it was almost 9 p.m. before the first arrived. At one point, out of a total of 92 pieces of Detroit firefighting equipment and 56 brought in from surrounding communities, only four engine companies were available to guard areas of the city outside of the riot perimeter. 
as the afternoon progressed, the fire department's radio carried repeated messages of apprehension and orders of caution. Quote, there is no police protection here at all. There isn't a policeman in the area. If you have trouble at all, pull out. We're being stoned at the scene. It's going good. We need help. Protect yourselves. Proceed away from the scene. Engine 42, over at Linwood and Gladstone. They are throwing bottles at us, so we are getting out of the area. All companies without police protection. All companies without police protection. Orders are to withdraw. Do not try to put out the fires. I repeat, all companies without police protection orders are to withdraw. Do not try to put out the fires. End quote. It was 4.30 p.m. when the firemen, some of them exhausted by the heat, abandoned an area of approximately 100 square blocks on either side of 12th Street to await protection from police and National Guardsmen. During the course of the riot, firemen were to withdraw 283 times. Fire Chief Charles J. Quinlan estimated that at least two-thirds of the buildings were destroyed by spreading fires rather than fires set at the scene. Of the 683 structures involved, approximately one-third were residential, and in few, if any, of these was the fire set originally. Governor George Romney flew over the area between 8.30 and 9 p.m., it looked like the city had been bombed on the west side, and there was an area two and a half miles by three and a half miles with major fires, with entire blocks in flames, he told the commission. In the midst of chaos, there were some unexpected individual responses. 24-year-old E.G., a Negro born in Savannah, Georgia, had come to Detroit in 1965 to attend Wayne State University. Rebellion had been building in him for a long time because, quote, you just had to bow down to the white man. When the insurance man would come by, he would always call out to my mother by her first name, and we were expected to smile and greet him happily. And I know he would never have thought of me or my father going to his home and calling his wife by her first name. And I once saw a white man slapping a young pregnant Negro woman on the street with such force that she just spun around and fell. I'll never forget that. End quote. When a friend called to tell him about the riot on 12th Street, E.G. went there expecting a true revolt, but was disappointed as soon as he saw the looting begin. I wanted to see the people really rise up in revolt. When I saw the first person coming out of the store with things in his arms, I got really sick to my stomach and wanted to go home. Rebellion against the white suppressors is one thing, but one measly pair of shoes or some food completely ruins the whole concept. E.G. was standing in a crowd, watching firemen work, when Fire Chief Alvin Wall called out for help from the spectators. E.G. responded, his reasoning was, no matter what color someone is, whether they are green or pink or blue, I'd help them if they were in trouble. That's all there is to it. 
He worked with the firemen for four days, the only Negro and an all-white crew. Elsewhere, at scattered locations, a half-dozen other Negro youths pitched in to help the firemen. At 4.20 p.m., Mayor Cavanaugh requested that the National Guard be brought into Detroit. Although a major portion of the Guard was in its summer encampment, 200 miles away, several hundred troops were conducting their regular week-end drill in the city. That circumstance obviated many problems. The first troops were on the streets by 7 p.m. At 7.45 p.m., the mayor issued a proclamation instituting a 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew. At 9.07 p.m., the first sniper fire was reported. Following his aerial survey of the city, Governor Romney, at or shortly before midnight, proclaimed that a state of public emergency exists in the cities of Detroit, Highland Park, and Hamtramck. At 4.45 p.m., a 68-year-old white shoe repairman, George Meserlian, had seen looters carrying clothes from a cleaning establishment next to his shop. Armed with a saber, he had rushed into the street, flailing away at the looters. One Negro youth was nicked on the shoulder. Another, who had not been on the scene, inquired as to what had happened. After he had been told, he allegedly replied, I'll get the old man for you. Going up to Merzerlian, who had fallen or been knocked to the ground, the youth began to beat him with a club. Two other Negro youths dragged the attacker away from the old man. It was too late. Merzerlian died four days later in the hospital. At 9.15 p.m., a 16-year-old Negro boy superficially wounded while looting, became the first reported gunshot victim. At midnight, Sharon George, a 23-year-old white woman, together with her two brothers, was a passenger in a car being driven by her husband. After having dropped off two Negro friends, they were returning home on one of Detroit's main avenues when they were slowed by a milling throng in the street. A shot fired from close range struck the car. The bullet splintered in Mrs. George's body. She died less than two hours later. An hour before midnight, a 45-year-old white man, Walter Grzanka, together with three white companions, went into the street. Shortly thereafter, a market was broken into. Inside the show window, a Negro man began filling bags with groceries and handing them to Confederates outside the store. Grzanka twice went over to the store, accepted bags, and placed them down beside his companions across the street. On the third occasion, he entered the market. When he emerged, the market owner, driving by in his car, shot and killed him. In Grzanka's pockets, police found seven cigars, four packages of pipe tobacco, and nine pairs of shoelaces. Before dawn, four other looters were shot, one of them accidentally while struggling with a police officer. 
a negro youth and a national guardsman were injured by gunshots of undetermined origin a private guard shot himself while pulling his revolver from his pocket in the basement of the thirteenth precinct police station a cue ball thrown by an unknown assailant cracked against the head of a sergeant at about midnight three white youths armed with a shotgun had gone to the roof of their apartment building located in an all-white block in order they said to protect the building from fire at two forty five a m a patrol car carrying police officers and national guardsmen received a report of snipers on the roof as the patrol car arrived the manager of the building went to the roof to tell the youths they had better come down the law enforcement personnel surrounded the building some going to the front others to the rear as the manager together with the three youths descended the fire escape in the rear a national guardsman believing he heard shots from the front fired his shot killed twenty-three-year-old clifton pryor early in the morning a young white fireman and a forty-nine-year-old negro homeowner were killed by fallen power lines by two a m monday detroit police had been augmented by eight hundred state police officers and one thousand two hundred national guardsmen an additional eight thousand guardsmen were on the way nevertheless governor romney and mayor kavanaugh decided to ask for federal assistance at two fifteen a m the mayor called vice president hubert humphrey and was referred to attorney general ramsey clark a short time thereafter telephone contact was established between governor romney and the attorney general footnote a little over two hours earlier at eleven fifty five p m mayor kavanaugh had informed the u s attorney general that a dangerous situation existed in the city details are set forth in the final report of cyrus r vance covering the detroit riot released on september twelfth nineteen sixty seven and footnote there is some difference of opinion about what occurred next according to the attorney general's office the governor was advised of the seriousness of the request and told that the applicable federal statute required that before federal troops could be brought into the city he would have to state that the situation had deteriorated to the point that local and state forces could no longer maintain law and order according to the governor he was under the impression that he was being asked to declare that a state of insurrection existed in the city. The governor was unwilling to make such a declaration, contending that, if he did, insurance policies would not cover the loss incurred as a result of the riot. He and the mayor decided to reevaluate the need for federal troops contact between detroit and washington was maintained throughout the early morning hours at nine a m as the disorder still showed no sign of abating 
the governor and the mayor decided to make a renewed request for federal troops. Shortly before noon, the President of the United States authorized the sending of a task force of paratroops to Selfridge Air Force Base near the city. A few minutes past 3 p.m., Lieutenant General John L. Throckmorton, commander of Task Force Detroit, met Cyrus Vance, former Deputy Secretary of Defense, at the air base. Approximately an hour later, the first federal troops arrived at the air base. After meeting with state and municipal officials, Mr. Vance, General Throckmorton, Governor Romney, and Mayor Cavanaugh made a tour of the city, which lasted until 7.15 p.m. During this tour, Mr. Vance and General Throckmorton independently came to the conclusion that, since they had seen no looting or sniping, since the fires appeared to be coming under control, and since a substantial number of National Guardsmen had not yet been committed, injection of Federal troops would be premature. As the riot alternately waxed and waned, one area of the ghetto remained insulated. On the northeast side, the residents of some 150 square blocks inhabited by 21,000 persons had, in 1966, banded together in the Positive Neighborhood Action Committee, PNAC. With professional help from the Institute of Urban Dynamics, they had organized block clubs and made plans for the improvement of the neighborhood. In order to meet the need for recreational facilities, which the city was not providing, they had raised $3,000 to purchase empty lots for playgrounds. Although opposed to urban renewal, they had agreed to co-sponsor with the Archdiocese of Detroit a housing project to be controlled jointly by the Archdiocese and PNAC. When the riot broke out, the residents, through the block clubs, were able to organize quickly. Youngsters, agreeing to stay in the neighborhood, participated in detouring traffic. While many persons reportedly sympathized with the idea of a rebellion against the system, only two small fires were set, one in an empty building. During the daylight hours Monday, nine more persons were killed by gunshots elsewhere in the city, and many others were seriously or critically injured. 23-year-old Nathaniel Edmonds, a Negro, was sitting in his backyard when a young white man stopped his car, got out, and began an argument with him. A few minutes later, declaring he was going to paint his picture on him with a shotgun, the white man allegedly shotgunned Edmonds to death. Mrs. Nanny Pack and Mrs. Maddie Thomas were sitting on the porch of Mrs. Pack's house when police began chasing looters from a nearby market. During the chase, officers fired three shots from their shotguns. The discharge from one of these accidentally struck the two women. Included among those critically injured when they were accidentally trapped in the line of fire were an eight-year-old Negro girl and a 14-year-old white boy. As darkness settled Monday, 
the number of incidents reported to police began to rise again. Although many turned out to be false, several involved injuries to police officers, national guardsmen, and civilians by gunshots of undetermined origin. Watching the upward trend of reported incidents, Mr. Vance and General Throckmorton became convinced federal troops should be used, and President Johnson was so advised. At 11.20 p.m., the President signed a proclamation federalizing the Michigan National Guard and authorizing the use of the paratroopers. At this time, there were nearly 5,000 guardsmen in the city, but fatigue, lack of training, and the haste with which they had to be deployed reduced their effectiveness. Some of the guardsmen traveled 200 miles and then were on duty for 30 hours straight. Some had never received riot training and were given on-the-spot instructions on mob control, only to discover that there were no mobs and that the situation they faced on the darkened street was one for which they were unprepared. Commanders committed men as they became available, often in small groups. In the resulting confusion, some units were lost in the city. Two guardsmen assigned to an intersection on Monday were discovered still there on Friday. Lessons learned by the California National Guard two years earlier in Watts regarding the danger of overreaction and the necessity of great restraint in using weapons had not, apparently, been passed on to the Michigan National Guard. The young troopers could not be expected to know what a danger they were creating by the lack of fire discipline, not only to the civilian population, but to themselves. A Detroit newspaper reporter, who spent a night riding in a command jeep, told a commission investigator of machine guns being fired accidentally, streetlights being shot out by rifle fire, and buildings being placed under siege on the sketchiest reports of sniping. Troopers would fire, and immediately from the distance there would be answering fire, sometimes consisting of tracer bullets. In one instance, the newsman related, a report was received on the jeep radio that an army bus was pinned down by sniper fire at an intersection. National Guardsmen and police, arriving from various directions, jumped out and began asking each other, where's the sniper fire coming from? As one guardsman pointed to a building, everyone rushed about taking cover. A soldier, alighting from a jeep, accidentally pulled the trigger on his rifle. As the shot reverberated through the darkness, an officer yelled, What's going on? I don't know, came the answer. Sniper, I guess. Without any clear authorization or direction, someone opened fire upon the suspected building. A tank rolled up and sprayed the building with fifty caliber tracer bullets. Law enforcement officers rushed into the surrounded building and discovered it empty. They must be firing one shot and running, was the verdict. The reporter interviewed the men who had gotten off the bus and were crouched around it. 
when he asked them about the sniping incident he was told that someone had heard a shot he asked did the bullet hit the bus the answer was well we don't know bracketing the hour of midnight monday heavy firing injuring many persons and killing several occurred in the southeastern sector which was to be taken over by the paratroopers at four a m tuesday and which was at this time considered to be the most active riot area in the city employed as a private guard fifty-five-year-old julius l dorsey a negro was standing in front of a market when accosted by two negro men and a woman they demanded he permit them to loot the market he ignored their demands they began to berate him he asked a neighbor to call the police as the argument grew more heated dorsey fired three shots from his pistol into the air the police radio reported looters they have rifles a patrol car driven by a police officer and carrying three national guardsmen arrived as the looters fled the law enforcement personnel opened fire when the firing ceased one person lay dead he was julius l dorsey end of section 14